0: Space has been in the news again this week. Like, space. You might have heard this. Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder, is supposed to go into space next month for the first time through his private company. And then apparently there was some leak from Richard Branson's space company saying he might beat Bezos to it. I haven't really tracked much with it, to be honest. But Eric does. So it's to his credit that we tuned in a few years ago when another billionaire, Elon Musk, finally succeeded in sending up a SpaceX rocket and landing it without crashing. Uh, Eric watched it with Ruthie. That's kind of a fun, introduce your kids to space. Uh, They're actually, you know, Elon Musk is selling tickets for the fall, if anyone's interested, going up to space. I was a bit more interested this week in a video that SpaceX released a few years back, which was all the times they failed to land the rocket. There's a picture of a rocket that went down in flames. The caption reads, It's just a scratch. Another, well, technically it did land, just not in one piece. Musk even invented a phrase, rapid, unscheduled disassembly, to describe the biggest of the crashes. Now, let's imagine you're Elon Musk with this big company and you're watching all these crashes. Well, you have three choices, right, when something crashes. You can keep doing the same thing and hope it'll turn out better next time. You can give up. Or you can find the answers to the question, what went wrong? Based on where he is today, I'm going to assume he's chosen number three over and over. What went wrong? Because we can learn a lot from understanding our failures. In our Old Testament scripture this morning, we arrive at a big transition in the history of Israel. The transfer of the kingship from Saul to David. Now, in God's perspective, it's pretty clear this shift comes because of failure. Saul is a failed leader. Not the first, definitely not the last. And today we're going to actually spend some extra time with Saul's story. The lectionary gives us that transition, but we're going to tell his story, in part because it's less familiar to us than God's chance of David. Saul's story actually covers chapters 9 through 16. So don't get a big overview. If you have your Bibles, it's really interesting to read. Now, remember, ordinary time, we talked about last week, it shifts our perspective of where God is at work. And building on that, the kingdom of God shifts our perspectives on the leaders through whom God works. That's our focus today. So to help with this shift in our perspective, we're going to look at Saul's story and just ask the question, what went wrong? Three lessons from a failed leader. So first, Saul's story. You might remember last week people ask for a king. It's kind of a messy situation, but Saul's chosen. Today Saul's rejected. And what between? Big chunk of narrative. So let's tell a story. Chapter nine, we meet Saul's dad, Kish. He's a man of standing, some sort of leader in the community. We're told Saul's handsome and a head taller than everyone else. I'm a little jealous of that. Saul meets Samuel while searching for his donkeys. We learn God told Samuel to accept Saul and to anoint him that Saul was chosen to deliver God's people from the Philistines. So they meet. Samuel says, God's got plans for you. Saul says, but I'm the smallest tribe and the least important clan. How can it be? Samuel anoints Saul promptly, says, here's what you're going to do. Spirit of the Lord is going to come on you. And Saul obeys. The Spirit comes on him and he prophesies. And people say, Saul's prophesying? What's going on? So far, so good. So he's been anointed privately, then it's time to choose him publicly. Samuel calls forward each tribe by lot. It's an interesting thing in Scripture, isn't it? He narrows it down to the tribe of Benjamin, then to the clan of Matri, then he narrows it down to Saul, but Saul is missing. This is the funniest thing. I don't remember ever noticing that in Scripture before. They can't find him. They ask God, and it's God who says, he's hidden out there on the supplies. They bring him out. Again, we're told he's a head taller than anyone else. Remember, they want a warrior for their battles. And they say, long live the king, not in French. Vive le roi. Samuel writes down that the king has rules. He writes it down in the presence of the Lord. That's a sign to us that this is supposed to be a different sort of kingship than the neighbors have. It's one with rights and duties, one before the Lord. Yahweh is the ultimate king. That's a difference. They go home. Saul, some people are really his fans, some are not. That's where we're at. Chapter 11, Saul defeats the Ammonites. All these good biblical, you know, names of people, like we get confused. The Ammonites who were oppressing the people. So this big military victory gets everyone on board. Again, this public coronation now as king before the Lord. Again, a different sort of kingship. It's looking good. All right, let's go out and get the Philistines. They start attacking. The word gets out and the Philistines gather. With 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, Soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I mean, Hollywood, I'm amazed they haven't gotten a hold of this. Now, the Israelites are hiding in caves, bushes, rocks, and pits. It doesn't sound like a good scenario. Saul's waiting there with them. The troops are afraid. You can imagine they're ready to go. But he has to wait seven days for Samuel, some arrangement that they've made. That's a long time, I can imagine, for these folks to wait, ready to go. They're scared began to scatter. And then comes Saul's fatal choice, number one. Saul takes matters into his own hands and offers up the burnt offering to the Lord himself rather than waiting for Samuel the prophet. Just as the offering is finishing up, the last smoke is going up to the sky. Along comes Samuel. What have you done? It's not totally clear what the deal is other than that Saul was supposed to wait and he didn't. And Samuel's response is, you've done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God has given you. And the consequence for this fatal choice, the kingdom is no longer going to pass down to your sons. The Lord's found his own choice to be the next king because you have not kept the Lord's command. So no dynasty for Saul. Now, why did Saul do this? I mean, I can imagine as a leader, the pressure of that. Everyone's ready. I got to do something. Maybe he figured it didn't matter how it got done as long as it got done. But there's an element of superstition too. we have got to seek the Lord's favor before battle through this particular ritual. Somewhat manipulate the Lord rather than trusting or obeying what the Lord had said to do. That superstitious streak carries through in the next few chapters. You can read that. Saul brings out the ark as a sort of magic eight ball for one of the battles. He makes his troops not eat all day under oath. That's, you can imagine that the troops aren't going to fight real well if they haven't eaten all day. He's waiting for a sign when it's clear that Jonathan's down there. The Lord, Jonathan, the Philistines are on the run, and Saul's going. I need a sign about what to do. It's clear. Well, then Samuel gives Saul some instructions from the Lord. Go punish the Amalekites. Another long A name. The Amalekites for the way they treated Israel on their way up from Egypt. Practice the harem with them, that that practice of totally devoting things to God by destroying them. That's a hard one, right? How does a loving God command total destruction of people made in his image? I can't answer all your questions today, but I did want to say two quick things because I know this is hard. One, God works with what he's got. He rarely overrides everything problematic in a culture. And that sort of warfare was the method in that time and that culture. The difference is, this is the thing, God takes culture. He doesn't write it, but he moves it more toward his purposes. And the way he does that here is he says, you don't get to decide who to wipe out. I'm going to be very specific. I'm the one that chooses, the Lord says. Still not great, something. And also the trajectory of scripture moves very clearly away from that sort of warfare. Think about the New Testament ethics of Jesus, totally different. Redemption in Scripture moves away from warfare and revenge for the people of God while holding on to the principle of total devotion to God. I imagine that doesn't answer all your questions. It doesn't answer mine. But that's what I want to say about that right now. We can talk more about it if you need to. So anyway, Saul's instructions are clear. Get rid of everything, everybody and everything in this town because of how they treated my people. So he goes and attacks, but then comes Paul's second And last, fatal choice. He spares the king of the Amalekites and the best of all their stuff. And he destroys everything that was despised and weak. This is in chapter 15. It's right after that we hear for the first time the Lord saying to Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king is so angry at hearing that, he stays up all night crying out to the Lord. And the next day, he, Samuel goes to find Saul, but he's told, Saul went to Carmel. He set up a monument there in his own honor. In his own honor. A little power went to this guy's head really quickly. So Samuel confronts Saul, and Saul gives the excuse, I was saving this good stuff to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel's response is striking. To obey is better than sacrifice. Rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So after Saul's first fatal choice, God removed a dynasty. And now it's clear he's going to remove the kingship as well. Now Saul's response on this, it sounds good on the surface. He says, I've sinned. I violated the command of the Lord. But it's pretty clear that this isn't true repentance. He only says that after he hears about the consequence. You might think maybe he's trying to manipulate God again. If I repent, maybe he'll change his mind. But then he also blames it on his men. I was afraid of the men and I gave in to them. That sounds like the Garden of Eden. No real responsibility So by the end of chapter 15, Samuel is grieving over Saul. The Lord is regretting he made Saul king in the first place. The only one expressing no regret or grief or remorse is Saul. Saul never repents, and his choices just get worse from here on out. It's that doubling down on disobedience that gets him rejected as king and opens the door to David, the man God chooses himself. That's a lot. There is a lot in this story we could talk about. What lessons should we talk about today from the story of Saul? I want to highlight three things. Lessons for those of us who are leaders in training, but also lessons for those who are led by leaders. So it's for all of us. If you're in this church, you have a leader. One of them's right here. It's a little sobering, actually, reading these stories as a leader, isn't it? First, lesson one. In the kingdom of God, you can't tell someone's leadership potential just by looking. It's something that Miss Debbie highlighted for us. If you put Saul and David side by side, you'd probably choose Saul as a king to fight battles. It's amazing how um, this marker of height, is still a visual marker we use today for leaders. I read something at some point, I don't know if it's still accurate, but that in our presidential elections, it's usually the tallest person who wins. That's interesting. There's this contrast with who we're told he's a, he's a he's good-looking guy, but he's small, he's young, he doesn't look like a man. I think this goes along with this passage from 2 Corinthians we have today. From now on, no one from a worldly point of view. We once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Regarding leaders from a worldly point of view might mean we base our leadership on attraction or height. See men as better leaders. Lead like men. Sometimes it's subtle prejudice based on skin color or nationality. There's this research you might be familiar with about you know, people with the same resume, but they submit it under a different name. So if they submit it under a name like John Smith versus a name like Jamal Jones, signaling a difference in skin color. The one with the name that sounds more white got more callbacks despite it being the exact same resume. In the kingdom of God, leadership potential isn't based on these outward or worldly virtues. Virtues. We are not to regard one another from a worldly point of view. So for those of us who are led by leaders, and again, if you're in this church, you are. If you have a job, you are. This lesson from a leader asks us a question, who do we see honor and celebrate as a leader and why? Whose potential might we be overlooking because of something external? gender, or race, or education, or attractiveness, or age, we can't get rid of those things, but we can bring them to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. Help us regard no one from a worldly point of view from now on. Let's learn this lesson from the story of Saul. Lesson two, character matters in the kingdom of God, and especially for leaders. Saul's failures were not primarily failures of skill, but failures of character. He started out okay, recognizing his smallness, obeying God by stepping into the position, even winning that first battle. But so quickly he went from humble, obedient-ish to building a himself and destroying the things that were weak. His character flaws come out through the whole narrative, that superstition being easily swayed by the pressures of the crowd, that fear of what people. Were thinking. thinking he knew better than God, arrogance. Note that Samuel says that arrogance is like idolatry. And all those things only grew bigger under the pressures of leadership. Power magnifies our weaknesses, which is why character matters for leaders in the kingdom of God. The most important quality for a leader in God's kingdom is not charisma or vision or skill the most important quality for a leader in the kingdom of God is obedience the king was meant to be a person obeying God and under God's leadership Saul's failures were failures of obedience think about Jesus The main thing characterizing Jesus' relationship to the Father, his response was that same kind of obedience rooted in love and trust. In fact, Jesus quotes Samuel's words to Saul when he says, the Lord desires mercy, not sacrifice. Tying obedience to showing mercy to our neighbor, to loving God and our neighbor as ourselves. In God's kingdom, that's what leaders do. And leaders are primarily followers like everyone else. Followers of Jesus who are called to be with Jesus and to be like Jesus. That's character. So for those of us who are leaders or leaders in training, and again, you never know who that might be. The Lord does. This lesson from a failed leader means that character or soul work is as essential for us as any skills or gifts we bring to the table. So what rhythms, if you're a leader or being in training for leadership or desire to be a leader, what rhythms can you put in place even now to build your character and your emotional health? Counseling, spiritual direction, prayer, solitude, scripture? Let's learn this lesson from the story of Saul. And lesson three. God longs for good leaders for his people. Bad or abusive leaders are not the way it's supposed to be, and God really cares about that. I was talking a bit with Dr. Madison Pierce this week about the passage, and she made the point that 1 Samuel 16 portrays the way the world is supposed to work, with God replacing bad leaders with good. It sure doesn't seem like that always happens in the real world. And that's why Samuel's response is so helpful for us here. God regrets making Saul king, but Samuel... Samuel grieves. He invested a lot in Saul. Emotional time and energy, training and mentoring him, advocating for him. Saul was Samuel's hope for, what, for his legacy. And now, here we are. Samuel grieves. How many times in the past few years have we grieved the corruption of our leaders, our leaders and the church? A lot a lot, and that grief is an appropriate response to an abusive leader or a failed leader, a leader that's unrepentantly disobedient to Jesus, a leader that destroys the weak, a leader that builds monument to himself. We are right to refuse to call that good and to grieve. All leaders have flaws, but there's a big difference between flawed and unrepentant. It's not Saul's flaws that get him disqualified as king. It's his choice over and over to disobey and his failure to repent. God blesses flawed leaders, thanks be to God, but not unrepentant ones. So if you're a leader or a leader in training, take this as a warning, practice repentance. That means practice it. See your mistakes, learn from them, turn from them, practice it, don't be afraid of being wrong. Be afraid of being unrepentant. So Samuel grieves, God regrets, but then God says, Let's get to work. I've got someone else in mind. You're in that place today of grief over the leaders in the church. I get that. But hear this too God wants good leaders for his church. And God is at work right now. Let's learn this lesson from the story of Saul. Where are we looking to find God's fresh crop of leaders? Are the leaders already in place doing God's good work? Remember, ordinary time shifts our perspective. I was encouraged by reading uh, Beth Allison Barr's new book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. It's a good read. She tells stories of women active in church history that we've just forgotten. We've just forgotten. There's medieval women, fascinating stories, crazy stories. But there's also people more recent. People like Mary J. Small, ordained an elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in 1898. An elder. There's Mrs. Lewis Ball, who traveled across the country in the earliest 20th century as a preacher and evangelist, preaching and teaching wherever she went in the Baptist churches. There's Ella Eugene Whitfield, an African-American missionary who preached in one year, almost 500 sermons and visited 1,000 homes and churches. That's a busy year. The stories and the people are there if we have ears to hear. And the leaders God's calling are there too. Maybe even right here, if we have eyes to see them and hearts to receive them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that every time your people cry out to you for deliverance, you answer. Every time whether it's the Exodus or the Philistines or now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are always raising up people to do your work. People who are unexpected, people like us. I pray that in this community, Lord, we would be able to clearly see those you're calling and invest in them and equip them, that we would not regard anyone from a worldly point of view, but as new creation and with the eyes of the kingdom. Comfort us in those places where we grieve and implant in us that deep hope that you are at work, that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Amen.